0: May the 26th 1971. Qantas receives a phone call saying that there's a bomb on flight 755 bound for Hong Kong. The caller says that if the plane drops below 20,000 feet that it will explode unless a ransom of 500,000 is paid. Hi, I'm your host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hi, Islanders, tonight is a very interesting story that happened many years ago in Sydney, Australia. It's 1971. Maggie May is a big hit for Rod Stewart. There are at least 10 airlines hijacked around the world, including the November 24th Northwest Orient Airlines Fr- Flight 305, as you probably know as the DB Cooper incident. So as I said in the intro... It's May the 26th, 1971, Sydney, Australia. Qantas Flight 755, which was named the City of Broken Hill, a Boeing 707 en route from Sydney to London, with a refuelling stop at Darwin and further stops at Hong Kong, New Delhi, Tehran and Rome. There are 116 passengers on board and 12 crew. Actually, it was in 1971 the Qantas introduced the Boeing 747, which only over the last few years have they started to phase out in preference for newer, more efficient aircraft. Anyway, back to May 26, 1971. It's 11.30am and a clear morning as Flight 755 pushes back from the departure gates and taxis onto the runway. It's given the all-clear to take off and it starts its journey north along the air corridor towards Darwin, where it will take on more fuel before heading to its destination of Hong Kong. All is well until 1pm when a Mr Brown calls the Department of Civil Aviation, or DCA, stationed at Sydney Airport and tells them there's a bomb in Locker 84 at Sydney Airport. Police are called and they quickly locate a brown bag in Locker 84 and that contained a bomb consisting of 12 sticks of gelignite attached to an altometer with three letters. Now one was advising that there was a similar device on board Flight 755. The second letter explained how it could be diffused and the third was addressed to Qantas General Manager Captain Robert Ritchie Demanding a half a million dollars for the location of the bomb on board the plane. Police have bomb squad officers check it out and make it safe, replacing the gelignite and detonator with a light bulb. The chief pilot on board seven five five, Captain William Selwyn, is contacted and told there is a bomb on board to maintain thirty five thousand feet and not to descend below twenty thousand feet. Selwyn orders flight crew to search the plane for the device and passengers are told there is a technical issue with the plane and they are diverting to Brisbane. They are also told that the flight crew are looking for a box and not to be alarmed. However, they all knew it was probably a bomb they were searching for. (laughs) How to be, eh? Initially, Captain Selwyn is told to divert the plane towards Brisbane but then told to fly to Sydney as they had far better emergency services available. Police and Qantas staff then take another Boeing 747 with a now-diffused bomb and fly to 30,000 feet. They then descend below 20,000 feet and they see that the light on the bomb turns on, so they know that the mysterious Mr. Brown was capable of building a bomb that would go off once the aircraft descended below 20,000 feet. A funny side to all of this, when Captain Robert Ritchie, who was head of Qantas at the time, was first called by Commonwealth Police to alert him of the bomb plot, he was at lunch, and so Deputy Manager Captain P.W. Housen had to deal with the issue. So the next call from Mr. Brown was to Qantas. And as I said before, Captain Ritchie was still at lunch. And so Mr. Brown told his deputy, Captain Housen, that he wanted $500,000 in unmarked bills to be placed in suitcases and dropped off in the locker by 4 p.m. Police had set up a command post at Qantas's head office by 2 p.m., which at the time was located at Qantas House at Chifley Square in the CBD, not at Mascot Campus as it is now. The Reserve Bank is notified to get the money ready and take it to the Qantas head office. A cheque for 500000 was drafted up. There you go. Try and get a refund nowadays that quick. So, you can imagine the scene. There's a 707. With 128 people on board flying at 35,000 feet, police get a call saying there is a bomb at the airport. They find a bomb only to discover there is a similar one on Flight 755. They make the bomb safe. They get another 707 in the air to see if the device works. They find out it does. They have to set up a command post in the city office of Qantas and tell the Reserve Bank to get half a million dollars in unmarked bills ready by 4 p.m. And I don't want to sound harsh on the poor guy, but imagine yourself as the general manager blissfully unaware of all this going on while you're at lunch. Talk about missing out on all the action. Anyway, the flight has been diverted to Sydney, and nine Navy ships have been directed to Botany Bay, which is where the airport is at Mascot, Emergency services are everywhere, and Flight 755 arrives and circles the area, making sure it stays above 20,000 feet. Flight crew are frantically pulling apart the inside of the aircraft in the hope of locating the the device, but they have no luck at all. At 3pm, Captain Housen takes a call from Mr Brown, and Housen tells him that they can't make the 4pm deadline to get the money ready. Howson tells Mr. Brown that the $25,020 bills would not fit in the locker at the airport. Mr. Brown replies that he never intended it to go there and to have it packed in suitcases where he would pick it up outside the airline's head office at Chifley Square. He would drive past in a yellow combi van and that he didn't want police nearby and that he wanted the general manager, Captain Robert Ritchie, to hand the suitcases over personally at 5.45pm. Now, you can imagine the bind the police are in at this point. They have a plane full of people that is rapidly running out of fuel, that can't descend below 20,000 feet, and this Mr. Brown guy is the only person who knows where the bomb is located on board. It's not just a matter of grabbing the guy once he turns up to collect the money. They need to go along with the plan so that they can safely land the plane. Of course, they could tail the van once the money was picked up, and as soon as they were made aware of the location of the bomb on board and defuse it, they could grab the Mr. Brown guy, and that'd be that. So as 5.45pm approaches, the general manager of Qantas has his two suitcases with half a million dollars in unmarked bills ready and waiting downstairs at Qantas's head office in Sydney. A hurt yellow rental combi van approaches, driven by a guy around 30 years old with brown hair, dark glasses and a fake beard. The driver opens the window, dangles a set of keys out of it, now that was a signal that was pre-arranged, and says, I am the man. Captain Ritchie pushes the suitcases inside and the van drives off into peak hour traffic. Now, police tail the van, but they lose him. They, later on, they find the van up the road, abandoned at George and Bathurst Street. Now, that's about two minutes walk from my place, and it's only about ugh, another couple of minutes to get to Qantas head office. you got going to love the cops back then. You must admit they were the best money could buy. Anyway, there's no sign of the mysterious Mr. Brown or the money. Qantas then get a call from Mr. Brown just 25 minutes after the pickup and he tells them that there's no bomb on board. With only 20 minutes fuel left on the aircraft, Captain Selwyn is notified and he lands the 707 safely at Sydney Airport. Now, Captain Selwyn, he used to fly in World War II, so he had nerves of steel. All passengers and crew are unharmed and are placed on alternate flights over the next day or so. Now, the police are given a right going over for their bungling of the surveillance of the van after the money was picked up. Now, (laughs) Fair enough, they did decide to maintain radio silence in case the perpetrators were listening in, but you can imagine the police commissioner screaming at them later in the day, how the fuck did you lose a bright yellow combi van in peak hour traffic for fuck's sake? I mean, I don't know if he said those exact words, but if I was police commissioner, that's what I'd say. Well, the trail went cold. Police had no idea who the Mr. Brown was, and only had the description from when he picked up the money and he was in disguise. They did, however, know he had a British accent from the phone calls, and they journeyed all over Australia, in fact internationally, to try and locate this mysterious Mr. Brown. But months later, they still had nothing. Phonetic experts believe that Mr. Brown was probably from the Midlands and had been in Australia for a couple of years. Now, the Midlands in the UK. Then police, who had fielded over 14,000 phone calls in regards to the extortion of Qantas, got a big tip. There was also a $50,000 reward on offer. An alert service station attendant saw this guy called Raymond Ponting. What caught his attention was that he knew this guy was always on the bones of his ass. But recently, he'd seen him with three different sports cars. So police quickly track down this ponning guy, and in no time, he's spilling the beans on the Qantas extortion. He tells police that he's only an accomplice, and that the brains of the operation is a guy that would turn out to be Peter Macari. Now, just to put some relevance on how much money Qantas handed over, in 1971, half a million dollars is worth over 5 million in today's money. So, this was pretty big. Macari, he was also quickly located and taken downtown. A third guy would also be arrested, Francis William Sorahan, although he would ultimately be acquitted of all charges, so I won't be talking about him today. So, who was this mastermind Peter Macari? Well, the phonetic experts were pretty bloody close. He was from Kent and had been in Australia a couple of years, so exactly what they said. Peter Macari, according to the Sydney Morning Herald in 1994, he was born in Kent, and was a small, dark-haired man who looked a bit like Punch from Punch and (laughs) Judy. Oh, God. He was a teenage crim and had served several prison terms for homosexual offences, car stealing and having unlicensed guns. He'd skipped bail on a charge of buggery of a 16-year-old boy and fled to Australia under a false passport in the name of Brian Roger Adams. He brought with him his life savings, and due to poor business decisions, he'd soon lost most of it. He ended up buying a camper van, did a bit of travelling around Australia, and he ended up in Townsville, where he was watching a movie in in his motel room called The Doomsday Flight. Now in 1966, this movie directed by Rod Serling of The Twilight Zone fame, well the plot of it, of this movie and this is from wikipedia is as follows a dc-8 airliner on a regular flight departs for the western united states where a bomb threat is made to the airline company that the plane belongs to it's later revealed that the bomb is a pressure sensitive one and will detonate if the plane goes below a regular cruising altitude Several attempts to find the bomb on board the flight, including tearing open several areas in the cabin and cockpit, are unsuccessful. Faced with a fuel shortage, the captain then comes up with the idea to land at an airport that is at at a high altitude. Towards the end, the bomb is discovered where it was least expected, the pilot's bag. Now I'm sure this is not the first time someone has been motivated by a movie or TV show to commit a crime but this really freaked out governments around the world and calls to restrict the broadcast of this movie came from not only governments but airline associations and airlines themselves to try and prevent copycatting. Makari, after seeing the movie went to Mount Isa which which is a big mining town in Queensland and was able to get hold of a dozen sticks of gelignite and then he drove down to Sydney. It's here that he was able to get an altimeter and construct the device he would later place in the locker at Sydney airport. And as you know Macari also known as Mr Brown was able to extort 500,000 from Qantas before being caught out. Now, when Macari was found, he had several cars, including an E-Type Jaguar, Mini Coopers, a Chevy Camaro, and even a Tangerine XY Ford Falcon GT, which was an Aussie muscle car of the day, and in its time, the fastest four-door production sedan in the world. (laughs) These GTs now sell for about a million bucks, so uh, yeah, (laughs) nice cars. Anyway, All these cars plus bank accounts were in the name of a Billy or William Day. Police saw this as one of Macari's aliases that he was using, but tragically this was not the case and I'll talk more about this a bit later. So, best way to stay under the radar is to buy a stack of sports cars, especially Tangerine and the Camaro was Iridescent Blue. In questioning, Makari tells police that he's not the mastermind and that the person is a guy called Ken. Now, this Ken guy is supposed to be a really dangerous crim and he put him up to it and now he held all the cash. A few days later, police were able to recover about 138,000 under a bricked-up fireplace in Annandale. Soon, another 137,000 was found under floorboards of a house in Balmain. So $244,000 was never found. Police didn't believe Macari's story about the crime boss called Ken and neither did the judge. Macari and Ponting would be charged and convicted of demanding money with menaces and without cause. Macari received a 15-year jail term and Ponting got seven. Ponting was released after four years and Macari served nine years before being released and deported back to, to England. Well, you can imagine what would happen to you in this day and age if you pulled a stunt like Macari did. You wouldn't be getting a few years and sent back home. Anyway, now, in the news at the time of Macari's extortion trial, the Day family read the story and the penny drops. Their son and brother, William or Billy Day, had disappeared in 1971 without a trace. And even though they reported him missing to New South Wales and Queensland police, it was not seriously investigated at the time, as police just thought it was just another tourist that went missing. I mean, what the fuck? Oh, another tourist gone missing, don't worry about it. Friends of Billy Day also contacted police with information linking Macari to Billy Day's disappearance. Now, they were friends in Randwick. They went to Randwick Police Station and said they think there's something linked with Macari and the disappearance of their friend Billy Day. When Macari was caught with all the bank accounts, driver's license and cars in Billy Day's name, they just didn't link it to the missing Billy Day. He'd also bought several airline tickets and had received treatment at Mount Isa Hospital in the name of Billy Day. Police on the extortion case just thought it was a made-up name Macari was using. There was no communication between those police that had been told about the link between Billy Day and Macari and the investigators on the Qantas extortion case. This probably wouldn't happen in this day and age. Not that mistakes aren't made now, but you'd hope this type of link would be investigated. Billy Day had come to Australia in 1969 and travelled with a friend, David Burt, around Western Australia. Eventually, Burt moved on, but Billy ended up in Sydney and found a flat in Bondi that Macari was staying in as well. Billy would often write and call his family, but then there was no contact at all. Bert got a letter to say that he was going to travel with a guy he'd just met who had a comma van set up as a camper van. Now, the, the British people here would know what comma vans are. They're just like a normal transit van type thing. Now, Macari had such a vehicle. Billy then vanished without a trace. There would be a coroner's report many years later when Macari was back in the UK after being deported and they would interview him did not seek extradition i suppose there was little real forensic evidence to link him to the disappearance sadly billy day's appearance would never know what happened to him as they passed away years ago and the coroner's report really didn't shed any light on what had happened to him this is probably the saddest part of the whole story how police just fucked everything up and they weren't able to link makari to the missing billy day if they had investigated Macari in relation to Billy's disappearance, they might have been able to get him for murder as well. I mean, he only got nine years and deported. There was still $244,000 missing, which as we know is like $2.4 million today. And there are theories that Macari re-entered Australia at a later date under another false passport and went to get the remaining money that was thought to be stashed in two safes that he was known to have purchased somewhere at Bondi, maybe in a cave. So islanders, maybe go and have a look for it. If you do find the money though, it will be the old paper $20 bill, so good luck trying to buy anything with that. We now have plastic or polymer money for those islanders that don't know. So there you go. The day Qantas was done for over half a million dollars, on the threat of destruction of a plane that was already in the air. All because Makari saw a movie that detailed almost that exact method. And actually, Rod Serling in later years regretted making the movie The Doomsday Flight, as it did trigger several incidents around the world. In fact, some arse clown in Sydney tried the same thing just a couple of years later with Qantas. A 21-year-old painter from Dremoyne in Sydney, he called police saying there's a bomb on board a flight and that was in progress and he demanded money. The slight flaw in his plan, though, he demanded the money to be dropped off at his own house. (laughs) What What a dick. Anyway, so Islanders... Now this is a story close to my heart as I do work and live so close to all the action on that happened on that 26th of May, 1971. Not so much of a rage today other than the police not investigating the Billy Day disappearance more thoroughly. So what do you reckon? When someone goes missing and another guy who's a liar and a thief turns up with all this shit in the missing guy's name? I don't know, I call it probable cause. Well, so that brings to an end the second of my episodes while on holiday, and I do know the audio isn't as good, but I think it's pretty close. Again, sorry, this is a little late, but there was a huge power outage here, and I had to find alternate co- accommodation for a few days, so I was a few days in front, I ended up a few days behind. So now on the Patreon and PayPal shoutouts. Vicky, hi Vicky, and thanks so much for your support. Jasmine. Uh, Also from Patreon Jasmine asked me to read out a story for her son Beckett And on the topic of bedtime stories If you joined my True Crime Island Facebook page I did recite my version of Hansel and Gretel Now a word of warning I do swear a bit in this Hansel and Gretel thing Uh, But go check it out But of course for Jasmine and her little son Beckett I was on my best behaviour Erin, thank you so much as well, and thank you so much, to, and shout out to all the present and past patrons. It does make a difference, and it's appreciated greatly. Also, I did have a generous PayPal donation from John Kelly this week. Thanks, John. As you know, True Crime Island is a listener-supported podcast, as I know you don't like ads. No one really likes ads, do they? To join the Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. Or if you just want to do a one-off donation, you can go to paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland and help out that island. If you want to support the island in another way, rate, review and share the podcast. And if you have friends or rellos that don't know what a podcast is, grab their phone and hook them up. If you want some merch such as T-shirts, hoodies, beach towels, mugs of rage and even tote bags and stuff, go to truecrimeisland.threadless.com and where you can find a large range of official True Crime Island loot. But if you want keychains, lapel pins, koozies, or stickers, you need to email me at cambo at truecrimeisland.com as I post directly from the island. The donation amount for all this merch depends on what you want and where you live, of course. Now, I know there's a lot of website addresses there. When in doubt, go to the website. that has got links to everything if you're not sure just send me an email now don't forget to join the closed facebook group hook up on twitter and instagram the the handle for both of those is at true crime island for the facebook group just search for true crime island and join the closed group like i said you can get a a good uh, rendition of hansel and gretel this week if you have a look i do try my best to answer all posts and emails if you really do need to speak to me, then the email is—it's uh, usually the best way to get me. Sometimes I do get a bit lost in all the Twitter feeds and stuff. Thanks to everyone that has reached out this week—we've had a few, a few case suggestions over the last few weeks. I'm look—I am the only one here, so I will try to get into as many suggested cases as I possibly can. Look, if you want to write me one, I will read it out as well. Our amazing mods or myself, they'll let you in to Facebook. Jason and Senga, hi. And the new mods, Erica and Susan, they've joined to help out the island and thank you all so much. Now, promo time. Now, I've got two this week. I've almost got three. Uh, uh, Baz's will be next week, but we'll, we'll do these two. First up is Murder and Such podcast with Haley and Hunter. Now each episode they will discuss all the odd and horrifying things in the world world such as murder, the macabre, macabre, serial killers and the dark subject matter, so give it a listen. Next is one of our islanders, Adam Payek. He's just launched his own podcast called Point Blank. Now, you know that the island likes to promote new podcasts, so have have a listen to Adam's new venture. It will bring you stories about murder, disappearances, mysteries and urban legends. So, look for, look for that wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that's about all for tonight and lots of love to Maggie James. So, this has been Cambo and you've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Boombuckalunga. Haley, and we're your hosts of Murder and Such, a podcast about true crime, serial killers, and other dark subject matter. Join us while we fill your ear holes with some crappy comedy and disgusting tales. You can now find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and all of your podcatcher services. You can like us on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at Murder and Such. Hope to hear from you guys soon. Bye. Bye. G'day, this is Adam, the host of Point Blank. This podcast will cover stories on murder, disappearances, mass shootings, mysteries, and all things true crime. If you're interested in listening, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you don't, Cambo will smash a mug of rage over your head. Thank you for listening. Now back to your scheduled program.